0: Um, If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 16. We'll be reading Genesis 16, the entire chapter. We're continuing our service this week um, of... Faith Builders, Lessons from Early Women in the Faith, looking primarily at women in Genesis and Exodus. This story uh, is a reminder to us that faith is both a product and a process. And one verse, or maybe two verses, to kind of keep in mind as we work our way through this series is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which remind us to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not unto our own understanding. In all our ways, submit to Him, and He will make our path straight. The idea here is what does it mean to trust God and trust God fully? And as we interact with these different women of faith, you'll see that we come up with different answers or they come up with different answers. But what does it mean to fully give yourself to God? It's also a reminder to us though that faith is something that God wants to build and something that God helps us with. He helps us in many different ways. He helps us first of all by giving us the Holy Spirit that lives within us. He helps us by giving us the body of Christ that's around us, not just our local body, but knowing that the body of Christ is all who believe in Jesus Christ. So that's billions of Christians the world over. That's every Christian who's ever lived. That's every Christian who will live. That's who you belong to as the body of Christ. Furthermore, he's given us Christ himself as an example in front of us, and he's given us the scripture to help guide us. So God provides these things to build our faith. So as we look at these women, as we go through their stories, may we be reminded that God wants your faith. Yes, he knows the process, but he wants your product. And the product is if you trust God and trust God more, your faith will grow. So my hope in this series is that we not only honor these women of faith, but that we honor God and know that God worked through them and God used them to bring us here today. So if you have your Bibles, turn now to Genesis 16. We'll have it up front as well so you can follow along there. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to shore. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. This is one of the top 10 weirdest promises in the Bible. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. What a blessing. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lohai Roy. It is still there now between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much this morning that you're the God who sees. You're the God who sees us. God, despite the world not being as it should be, despite the situations we're in, despite the brokenness that's in our world and in ourselves and in our relationships, you are the God who sees. God, we thank you that you redeem. We thank you that you uplift. We thank you that you look out for those that society would leave behind. We thank you that you're the God of all, that your promise is for all, and that you work in all of us. In your holy and precious name, amen. So what I love about this story, this is actually one of, um, I think, the hardest stories in the Bible. Um, I think it's a very hard story because we're divorced from that time and context. I think there's a lot going on in this story that we either missed or we chose not to dwell on because it's just hard to think through. So this morning, we're going to try to do some of that. Um, but more than that, I think this story has a lot of forever truths that are wrapped in that time and culture. You know, some of the forever truths in this story is that, you know, when you take your eyes off of God and you make your plans, you're going to run into trouble. Some of the timeless truths in this story is that if God is not the one leading and directing you, you're going to get into trouble. Another one from this story is that, you know, there's going to be people in your life that, that whether, you know, it's based on your job or, or in our country, your race or, or how much money you have, there's going to be people in your life or maybe your job because you're a leader. There's going to be people in your life that you have authority over and how you interact with those people and how you treat those people. If it's not like how God loves and treats people, you're going to run into trouble. These are all universal truths that are packed in this. And the idea here is simply, if you do not trust God in all things, you're going to run into trouble. Again, the ancient mindset and understanding of heart wasn't something emotional. It was your mind, your body, your soul, your spirit. So when God says, trust me with all your heart, he's asking you, do you trust me? Do you trust me now in this? Do you trust me with your hopes? Do you trust me with your dreams? Do you trust me with your future? Do you trust me with your gifts? Do you trust me with your finances? Do you trust me in all things? And kind of the universal tale we'll see time and time again, when we fail to trust God and trust God fully, we're going to run into trouble. So the time and place, though, and culture is something we have to understand. The first thing that's probably maybe the most important thing to understand in this story is that barrenness was not understood. Fertility was not understood the way we understand it now. In that culture, a woman being barren was a judgment from God. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. That was the understanding. For you to be barren, you were judged by God. Their understanding was simply, God blesses or God does not. God has said, be fruitful and multiply, so he blesses you with children. If you don't have children, you have done something to displease God. You have done something that deserves this judgment. The second thing that's understanding about fertility here is, not only is it a judgment from God, but not having children, not having an heir... Not having someone to continue the family line was a great sin. Now, for most of us, we have all these different reasons that we want children. For them, it was the sake of survival. Because if you worked for generations for all that you have, and you're not able to pass down to someone who will continue that work, if it was all for naught, that was thought to bring great shame. So they had kids for survival. For survival. They had kids to continue on. So the fact that you didn't have an heir means that God has chosen to what? End your family line. So you have to understand that in this culture, it wasn't just, oh, you're barren, you're cursed by God. It's you're barren and God wants to take you from this earth. You see the severity that these people lived in. Barrenness wasn't just like, oh, you're cursed. It's, no, God has decided your line will no longer continue. That was their mindset. That was their understanding. But we're humans, and we're inventive, and we're creative. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but a lot of times when lawyers give you contracts, there's clauses in the contracts. And you have to also understand that, that the covenant language that we use, testimony language that we knew, or testament language we knew. All that means it's contract. So the people then, in interacting in this mindset, in this culture that says, I'm barren, I'm cursed by God, I can't have any more children, they came up with clauses in the contract. And these are what some of their clauses look like. Because to not have a child was a catastrophe and you're being wiped off the earth. That you needed progenies and heirs for survival. They came up with a fix. And the fix looks like this. And you have to also understand that they came up with this fix because as messy as this would make all your relationships and your family dynamics, welcome to Genesis, as messy as it'll make all of that, none of that was worth more than not having an heir. Having an heir and a child superseded everything else. And it's a reminder to us that if what we really want and desire is not Jesus Christ, and it's any one thing, even if it's a good or great thing, if it's not God, we just might run into trouble. So they came up with these clauses, and their clauses look like this. Within the marriage covenant, within the marriage contract, there was an option for divorce. You could say, hey, I don't want God to to end our family line or end my family line, so I'm going to choose to dissolve this union and divorce and walk away. That was one option. The second option was you would get a second wife. You would say, hey, I love you, but I feel like God still has work for us to do. We still have more generations to come. And, And obviously, and again, right? We have to also understand that in this language, in this culture, in this context, it was always the woman's fault. That's how they operated. So the man then would decide, I don't know what you did to anger God because it was never his fault. I know we've progressed now in 2019. We never think this silliness, right? We never do that. We never oppress women today, right? That was called sarcasm. Don't boo me. (laughs) Uh, But second of all, like in that culture, he would then move on, and get a second wife. And that, again, because for them, having a child, having an heir, superseded everything. So they didn't just do it. So a lot of times we read in the Old Testament, we're like, they're polygamists because they didn't love their spouses. That's not true. It wasn't, and it wasn't just economic survival either. It was survival of the family, and that mattered the most. And this is still true today in a lot of cultures. Maybe not the polygamy, but this collective identity. One of the ways we're different from the rest of the world here in the West, here in the West we're about the individual. The rest of the world are about the family, the collective. You live for the family. You take steps forward as a family. Here we focus on the individual. So you also have to understand that mindset. So this is why you would have a second wife and hopefully God would bless you and that second wife and and, and then you would have an heir to pass on the family line. But there was also a third option. The third option was something that's very foreign to us, but we have to understand this is how they lived. The third option was they would get handmaids. The wives would either um, um, have... Okay, so I, I, I said this wrong the first time, but I think I corrected myself. So in that culture it was easy to call your wife your mistress. In our culture, mistress is something different. Mistress happens outside the union. In that culture, they would say the wife is the mistress. So she's the missus. Maybe we'll go that. We'll stay there. She's the missus, right? But a wife would have her own handmaids. And these handmaids would belong to the wife. Now, they were usually poor. They were usually slaves. They usually had no, well, no, not usually. They had no agency or authority over their own bodies. And the wife then would choose to either elevate that handmaid to a second wife or, because she had authority over them, she could dictate to that handmaid what to do with her body because all the handmaid could bring to the family is what? Fertility. So this is the culture they lived in. Now, the fourth option, which no one seemed to think was viable, but it probably should have, was adoption. You could have just adopted a child, made them the heir, and kept it going, right? But those were the world that they lived in. So we have to understand between Sarah, between Hagar, between Abram and that culture is this is the world they lived in. This was the cultural norm for marriage. You married, if you couldn't have child, you go to a second wife. If you can afford it, you go to a third wife. Or you would result to having a handmaid who would then give you your son and your heir that would move on the family's generations. Okay? This is how they operate. The second thing that's kind of important to understand is, and again, this one you have to use your imagination on, right? in that culture, you would have, you know, major uh, parties or major people um, from up high, right? And and instead of them ever talking, you know, we have major parties in this country, so maybe you can use your imagination on this. Instead of them ever talking to actually do what's best, they have these mouthpieces, right? And, And the mouthpieces were their representatives, and the representatives would come down, and they would have these meetings. So in that culture... You wouldn't, as a major person, go to another major person and say, how do we solve the situation? You would get a messenger. You would get an intermediary. In fact, the Hebrew word for angel means what? Messenger. So these intermediaries would come and they would meet to, to deal with whatever the situation is. The intermediaries, though, spoke on behalf of the person they represented, and they spoke with authority of the person they represented. So when we hear in the New Testament that we are Christ's ambassadors, when God says, you are my witnesses, this is not just some idealistic thing he's saying. He's saying you, and you have to not be Western on this, not you individually, but he's saying you as the body of Christ, you represent my authority, you represent my wisdom, you represent my my word to this world. Okay? So you have this culture of wives and and handmaids and maybe adoption, but you also have this culture where intermediaries would come and speak on behalf with authority. So where does Hagar fit in all this? Well, the first thing we learn about Hagar is that she's Egyptian. And the Bible is specific to tell you she's Egyptian, which means that she's a foreigner, she's an outsider, She's someone who's been taken from her home and put into another culture and another place. And she's put there without any power, without any agency, seemingly without any hope. Now, a lot of people feel as though that, you know, perhaps, perhaps Abram and Sarah acquired, which is how they would talk back then, Hagar during one of his trips to Egypt. You see, one of the things we have to remember about Abram is that we kind of think of it as this linear straight line story, right? God calls Abram. He says, I will make you a great blessing. You will be a great nation. Every family on the earth will be blessed. And we know that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But God makes this whole promise. And we think it's like, well, then the next step, they had a baby. That wasn't the next step. It was actually over 10 years of waiting since that promise, since Hagar comes in the scene. And in fact, there's a lot of people who now believe that it didn't just happen twice that Abram lied and said Sarah was his sister. So you have this great man of faith where when he took his eyes off of God, he started making his own plans, he got into trouble. And twice that's recorded in the Bible. But some people think that's what he did all the time as they traveled. He was so scared that someone else more powerful or stronger than him would take his wife that that was the company line. Tell them you're my sister. And this is one of the hardest stories to teach kids because in one of these instances, Abram does everything wrong he lies. He doesn't believe in God. He takes advantage of his wife. He lies to someone else and God blesses him. Now, for those of us who mess up all the time, this is one of the greatest stories in the Bible, right? It's just like, praise God. It's not about me. He's just good. But it's a reminder to us though, that after this mess up, in one of the stories, the Pharaoh in Egypt gives Sarah handmaidens. So it's not that much of a step to say that perhaps After Abram messed up, after they gifted handmaidens, one of these handmaidens was who we come to know as Hagar. Now, again, what I said about handmaidens is true. Hagar was under Sarah's authority. And one of the things we must remember about oppression is that quite often there's a few people in power who oppress the masses. But the way they oppress the masses is by using many of us as their enablers. Sarah has the power. Abram is the enabler. So when we see mass suffering, we have to ask ourselves, are we part of the people who are oppressing? I think a lot of us feel good when we can say no. But the harder question is, are we part of the people who are enabling this suffering? And I don't know how many of us can say no to that. So Sarah has complete authority, and we have to re-enter this human element. God made a great promise to Abram and Sarah, but it's now been almost 10 years. I don't know if you've waited on something from the Lord, but even if God comes to your face and tells you, this is what I'll do with you, 10 years is a mighty long time. That's over 3,650 days of waiting for God to come through. So Sarah comes up with this plan. She comes up with this plan and says, you know what? Abram, God made this promise, and and I know he made this promise, but but maybe we can come up with a way to help him out. That's a reminder to us. This is not the kind of help that God is asking you to do. God does not call you to help him do good in that sense. You know, like, God, I know you're you're not really doing anything right now, so let me help remind you and push you along. Because that's what she tries to do. Remember all that stuff I just said about handmaidens and wives and all that? It's already messy. But if you read the first 16, the first three or four verses in in, in Genesis 16, you'll see how Sarah makes it even messier. You see, because she had an option. She could have chosen to, to, to raise up and elevate Hagar and made Hagar a second wife. It would have been messy in the family dynamics, but it would have been somewhat clean. She could have also just said, you know what? You're still a handmaiden, and this child, and a lot of people interpret it this way because she says, I will build our family through him, right? So you could have just kept her a handmaiden and, and elevated and just taken the child and raised the child and adopted the child as yourself. That would have been okay. But if you read through those first three or four verses, you'll see that Sarah wants Hagar, her slave, to be like a wife, to be a surrogate, but then go back to being a slave, but you have to remember the human element. In fact, what's interesting about this is that the Hebrew kind of reminds us of Adam and Eve. The verb that's used is the same that's used with Eve and Adam. Eve took the fruit and she gave it to her husband. The writer of Genesis does the same thing in the Hebrew where where Sarah takes the person and gives her to her husband. This human element was, was brought into this situation because, like I said, in that culture, having a son and heir was the trump card. That mattered more than anything else. So this is why they're able to just keep going on this road, even though they know it goes to complete destruction, because this was the ultimate goal. Now, here's the thing about Sarah's plan. If having an heir is the most important thing in your culture, what happens when someone gets pregnant. Who becomes the most important person in the family? Hagar, the slave. So imagine before where Sarah can say, Hagar, sweep the tent. Hagar, cook the food. Hagar, take water to the animals. Now with the slave elevated because she carries the air inside of her, you can maybe imagine a scenario where Sarah's like, Hagar, cook the food. And Hagar says, hey, Sarah, I'm pregnant. A little tired today. Can you cook the food? You can imagine a scenario where, where Sarah says, Hagar, sweep the tent. And she's like, oh, it's just so hot. I don't want anything to happen to the baby. Can you sweep the tent? You can imagine a scenario where, where Sarah says, Hagar, the animals are thirsty. And Hagar says, I know they are thirsty. Where's your bucket? Hagar and this human element, she revels in the fact that she's elevated. And you can understand it. You can understand it because outside of Jesus Christ, we love to live tit for tat. Now, a lot of people think what Jesus says is treat people how you want to be treated. That's not true. And a lot of us think that's what Christian is, to treat people how we want to be treated. And that's what excuses us mistreating people who mistreated us. But no, it's treat people how God treats people. It's to love people the way God loves you. That's the call. That's what makes it hard. So even though she had been oppressed by Sarah, Hagar, if she was following God fully in this, would have still loved Sarah. But we do the same thing, don't we? Somebody treated me bad. So when the time comes, I'll let them not only know, but I'll take advantage of this situation that now I have the power. But here's the two things in this story really, really stumped me. For years, it stumped me. And the first one was this. Sarah, now that she's on the brunt end, now that Hagar's the one pushing her buttons and, and maybe telling her to do stuff that she feels is beneath her, she goes to Abram, her husband, and she says, this woman I gave you, you've brought pain in me, and now she's reveling in her being lifted higher than me. And Abram, in true enabler fashion, says, you just do whatever you have to do. And this is what got me for years. They're near the desert. It's very, very hot in the desert. She's very pregnant at this stage. And what got me for years is, what was the backlash that Sarah gave Hagar that a young Egyptian slave away from her family, very pregnant, chooses to run to the desert to escape from? And that's what got me for years. What happened to her, this great patriarch or matriarch of the faith, Sarah? What did Sarah do to her that her solution was to run into the desert? I've never been pregnant before. I can't even imagine pregnancy. But I also can't imagine a situation where a woman says, it's better for me to run into the unknown and run into the desert than to be under you. And that's what happens to Hagar. And she runs to the desert. But I love what happens next. Because what happens next is that God sends an angel. And a lot of people don't know who this angel is. There's a lot of people who read Angel of the Lord and and they say, well, that's got to be a special angel. There's some people who for years would teach that, well, obviously this is Jesus Christ because we believe in a triune God and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. So obviously Jesus is the one who went to Hagar. But I think if it was Jesus, the Bible would have told us it was Jesus. It just says the angel of the Lord. And if you read through the Genesis narratives, this angel of the Lord shows up time and time again And every single time it shows up, the people who interact with the angel, do you know who they think they see? God himself. The Father himself. And this is the only time in the entire Old Testament that someone actually looks at God and gives God a name. Remember last week we talked about in that culture, to name something was either to have authority over it or to have close relationship with it. And the only time that God allows a human being to give him a name is Hagar, the Egyptian slave. And this is a reminder to us that the people who are being oppressed, that the people who are being marginalized, that the people that we are stomping down on, that the people who are in the midst of suffering, God not only hears and sees their suffering, God sees them and has a plan for them the only person that gets to name him is Hagar in the middle of the desert she looks up at the angel of the Lord and says you are the God who sees me that'll preach but more than preaching that'll sustain you because in this life you will know trouble In this life, you will see suffering. You will experience suffering, maybe. In this life, you will see brokenness upon brokenness upon brokenness. But never forget that our God on high is the God who sees. And I love that when he comes to Hagar, he makes her this promise. And here's the hard, this is the second hard part about this in this story for me. He says, Hagar, I need you to go back. Now, we said, what did it take that a pregnant woman could run away into the desert? And now God's message is to go back. Now, I think we need to be careful because a lot of times we hear this and we read this and we're like, yeah, that just means that no matter how bad this situation is, God wants me to go through because he's powerful. That's not what God is saying. God is saying, yes, I know the plans I have for you. Yes, I'll never leave you or forsake you, and I'm going back with you. But here's the beauty that we miss. God is actually checking Hagar not to submit to the oppression, but to submit to the authority of Sarah, because Hagar has now elevated herself to the point where she's taking advantage of Sarah. And God says, no, 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 go back. She is the mother of promise. You do need to submit to her, but I will be with you. And the suffering will cease if you submit to her. And I think that's something we need to be reminded. When we go tit for tat, an eye for an eye truly will leave us blind. But if we're willing to be like God, if we're willing to be like our Christ, if we're willing to submit not to the oppression, but to God that he will lead us through the suffering, we can bring light we can bring love. We can bring God himself through those interactions. And Hagar gets this blessing of a son, Ishmael. Now, one of the things we've done wrong for hundreds of years is we've seen Isaac, the son of promise, and Ishmael, the son of Hagar, and we've seen them as contentious. You know, Paul doesn't help us because in Galatians, he talks about how Isaac is the son of promise. That's like the Christians, that's your sh- shorthand. And Ishmael's not the son of promise, so that's all the non-Christians. And that, if you kept it there, would be good. But so many of us, because of our allegiance to a flag and not to a cross, because of our allegiance to ourselves and not to the kingdom of the world, have used this teaching to say Jews and Arabs are, are not children of promise, and they're children who just fight all the time. But remember what God promised Abram. God didn't just say Abram would bless the Jews. God didn't just say Abram would bless people of only Jewish descent that came to his line. Remember the promises for who? All the nations of the earth. All the families of the earth. And the last time I checked, the Arabs were people of the earth. The last time I checked... God wanted them in his kingdom too. The last time I checked, God doesn't want you to excuse or a reason to hate your brother or your sister. God wants you to love them into his kingdom. Hagar in Genesis 21 goes from you're the God who sees me to Isaac being born. And Isaac is born, and Abraham and Sarah, they celebrate God's faithfulness. Remember, this has been almost 14 years since the original promise. Isaac finally shows up. But Sarah looks at Ishmael one day, and he's teasing Isaac, and he's mocking him, you know. For those of us who grew up with siblings, we're like, man, I am so glad I didn't get kicked out of the house for making fun of my sibling. But Sarah's concerned that Ishmael is bigger and stronger, that Ishmael's a firstborn, that Ishmael will be the son of promise. And she says, Abram, you have to get that woman and her son out of here. And that's the third hard thing about this passage. But Abram for finally goes from an enabler to actually a father. And he's heartbroken. He's heartbroken when he realizes I have to send my son into the desert with Hagar. And when I love is that when Abram finally feels something for Ishmael, that's when God shows up and God says, it's okay, I have a plan for Ishmael, he will be okay. He's not the son I promised you. He's the son you tried to force onto me and you made your own plan, but I will still bless him. (laughs) And what I love about that is after they go away, There comes a day where they're out of food, they're out of water, they're so thirsty and hungry. Hagar thinks her son's going to die, and as any mother, as anybody who cares, she cannot even take the fact that her son might die, so she leaves him under a tree, and she runs, and she's crying, and she's crying because she thinks this is the end, and then God shows up again. And it's a reminder to us that the God who sees doesn't just see us in the past. He sees us right now in the midst of our suffering. And God not only doesn't let her perish, he opens her eyes, he takes her to a well, and he establishes Ishmael as a great king who has 12 sons, and they set up 12 territories and kingdoms. God has a plan. So what is the the lesson in all this? And actually, this is something that's kind of interesting. Interesting. Abram, in sending them away, the writer of Genesis chooses to use the same word that the Jews use for divorce. And I always thought that was weird. But what I realize is Abram is not just saying, oh, Isaac gets the promise. But Abram is saying, you are free, and I'm putting you in God's hands. And I love that. And I love it because you have to look at this whole story arc of Hagar. She's gone from a foreigner to a member of God's family. She's gone from a slave to being set free. She's gone from a surrogate to a mother of nations. She's gone from someone who's been taken advantage of to someone who names God himself. Hagar the slave is being preached this morning in 2019 because she chose to trust the God who sees her. And what are some of the lessons for us? Well, it's always trust God fully and always trust God with all your heart. And this is something that you'll have to do the rest of your life. There's never going to come a time in life where you're like, you know what? I trust God fully. I'm good. Because life will happen. And life will always happen. The situations will always arise. So, the work for us is to trust God fully and always. Because if we don't trust God and we lean onto ourselves, we will run into trouble. The second one is to know that God sees you. I think one of the messages we have to hold on to is our God sees us. It's not just the suffering and the brokenness of the world, but whatever situation you're in, He's in it with you, He's here for you and he will never leave or forsake you. Just like Hagar could go through her suffering and say, God, you see me, we can say the same thing. I think maybe the third one that's hard for us is that God has chosen us to live and bless the foreigners and the strangers among us. And God tries to stress this over and over again. He says, listen, you yourself were a foreigner to me, and I chose to love you. How can you love me who you do not see when you don't love your sister and your brother who you do see? Sarah's treatment of Hagar should be a reminder to us that not only does God hold us accountable on how we love and treat one another, but if we're going to look like him, we must work for a way to make the immigrant, the stranger, the foreigner home with us. And the last one is simply this. Our God is a God who rescues. And I love that that was the message of VBS this week. David, who we studied uh, a couple months ago, man after God's own heart, that's what he kept coming back to. I think it's something we can all hold on to that no matter what situation you're in, God can redeem it. No matter what suffering you know, God has seen it and God has uplifted people from it before. No matter how muddy the mire seems, no matter how high the hill seems, no matter how big the challenge seems, our God is a God who rescues us. Amen? We're going to close our service this week by having communion. This week we'll have communion in the front. I ask the ushers to go to the back. But as we go through communion this week, before you get ready and come up, I just want you to be reminded of something simple as this. No matter what you're going through now, praise God, he will see you through it. No matter what you've gone through before, praise God, he will see you through it. And no matter what you've done before, praise God, he died to set you free from it. And no matter what you're in right now, praise God, he'll set you free from it. Amen? We now invite you to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak, not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, Lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and blessed it, broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing, He told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willing sacrifice, your loving sacrifice on the cross, for the breaking of your body and the spilling of your blood, for our sins, for our freedom. Words cannot express the gratitude in our hearts for the gift of life that you have given. Help us today as we partake of the bread and the cup. Help us to remember you and all that you did and are doing for us and will do for us. Help us to show our love for you and our gratitude in the ways we live. Please join us now in the communion response.